0: Hey everyone, welcome to The Rock Behind the Climbing, the podcast where I talk about the geology of rock climbing areas. I am Quinn the Jazz Hammer Todzo. welcome back. Man, we out here in Northern California have had quite the rough patch, to put it lightly. The entirety of Northern California, as well as the entire West Coast, has been under a plume of smoke for about a month now. Forest fires have erupted all up and down the West Coast states, and it's just a total mess. I mean, between COVID shutting down places indoors and air quality limiting anything outdoors, I've just felt really stuck lately, which has been hard because so much of my life involves being out and about. Luckily, things have cleared up a little bit in the last week, but the fires are certainly still raging and up until every up until very recently there really has been no escaping the smoke at first there were some areas that were a little less inundated like the north coast but the past two weekends there's just no escaping it like i would have had to drive like 12 hours to get far enough away where i could be sure of decent air quality so i've just felt very stuck and pent up This is particularly annoying in the context of the podcast, because I really liked the format of the first two episodes, where I went out to a spot, climbed and hung out for a day or so, and then came back and talked about it. Well, sadly, I was not able to do that this time. Luckily, I had this experience in the log and am thankfully able to bust it out since the smoke inhibited my ability to get out. So, on this episode, I'm going to talk about the bouldering at Dead Man's Summit, which I visited twice this past summer on road trips to the eastern Sierra. This location happens to be a pretty relevant one to talk about, given the air throughout California is riddled with ash, and the rock here was actually made out of ash, but not the same type of ash. I'll get into it in a bit. First, though, I just want to say thank you so much to everyone listening to the podcast. I have received an overwhelmingly positive response on my first two episodes and could not be more thankful. These past couple weeks have been tough for me, and the positivity that I received from the listeners has just been incredible. I've received some feedback, questions, and a ton of recommendations and requests for places to go in the future which is really exciting. I know I keep saying that. So thank you so much to everyone who has reached out so far, and please keep it coming because I love hearing from you and would love to connect. As I've said before, I'm really committed to this podcast, and I'm actually debuting my recently purchased new microphone setup on this episode rather than using my phone to record this thing. While it wasn't cheap, I was more than happy to invest in a real setup because of how much I've enjoyed making this podcast so far and the positive reinforcement I've received. I actually think that the last episode sounded pretty decent, but with this new setup, I'll be able to have two mics plugged in at once, which will allow me to have guests on the podcast. Hopefully, that will start to happen soon. For now, though, it's still just me. Before getting into the episode, I do want to address a few comments that I've gotten. First off, I've gotten a ton of suggestions on where to go. I really want to make it out to all the places recommended by you so far, but there are just a couple issues with some of the places recommended. First of all, I live in the Bay Area and work a full-time job as a civil engineer, so while I do have grand plans of traveling all around. I don't at the moment have the freedom to just go whenever, wherever, smoke or no smoke. So for those of you suggesting places in SoCal, the Pacific Northwest, Utah, etc., I have added those places to the list, but it might be a minute before I get there. Also, my experience level limits me a bit. As of making this episode, I really only have bouldered and top roped a bit, and I climb at a a v2 level max outdoors. I really want to get into sport climbing as soon as possible and then eventually into trad climbing, but for now I am limited to bouldering and top rope. If you're wondering why I've focused these first few episodes on bouldering areas, it's because I'm still working my way up. In due time, I'll have the gear, knowledge, and experience to tackle bigger walls, but luckily for now, there's no shortage of awesome places with cool geology that I can take on. So also, I got a comment online asking, why does sandstone not crack except in places like Indian Creek where it does? This user then goes on to ask how to identify different rock types. In short, to answer the first question, there are a are a ton of examples of cracks and crack climbing in sandstone locations, like for instance at Castle Rock, which I mentioned in the first episode. But vertical cracking is not necessarily a feature associated with the formation and general characteristics of a sandstone, and is rather, in a lot of cases, a product of processes that happen after the rock is initially formed. I think this leads to a bigger point, which is that rock type is not everything when it comes to the features of a rock. There are so many things that can affect the features of a rock climbing area aside from the type of rock. Factors like tectonic processes, total glaciation and river cutting, to even woolly mammoths shearing the rocks to get a back rub. Check out the last episode if you didn't get that reference. All of those can have a huge impact. I think this is a pretty important point to keep in mind when you start to think about what's going on at a crag, that the rock type is not everything. Ironically, though, the climbing features at Dead Summit, which I'm covering today, are largely due to the characteristics of the rock type, but it's still important to understand what's going on around it. Okay. With that business out of the way, let's travel to the eastern Sierra Nevada Mountains in California to Deadman Summit. Deadman Summit is a primarily bouldering area located just off Route 395 north of Mammoth Lakes and Bishop. It is the top of a small pass relative to the eastern Sierra Nevada mountain range, which is just west. It acts as sort of a link between the Nevada Basin and the grandeur of the Eastern Sierra. It is also conveniently right in the middle of a small number of popular outdoor recreation areas like June Lake, Mono Lake, and Mammoth. So it's called Dead Man Summit apparently because back in the late 1800s, there were a couple of unresolved murders that occurred at the pass. It's all outlined on a plaque found off the side of Highway 395. It's not actually known whether or not there was a crazy serial killer here, or if it just happened to be a good murder location, but nonetheless, the name Deadman stuck and refers to the summit and a nearby creek. In my experience with the place, the only thing getting murdered was the climbs though. I have been to Deadman Summit twice, both this past summer. And both times, this climbing area was actually not my main destination. The first time I went to Deadman, it was actually with the rest of my family. It's pretty cool, actually. My parents, my brothers, and I all got into climbing around the same time, and when we're all together, we will go out on family climbing excursions. In this case, we were vacationing in Mammoth Lakes and while it wasn't our main reason for being out there, we wanted to climb and caught wind of this spot from a local guide and figured we'd stop by on our way out. Actually, getting to the climbing spot was a little confusing, and after missing the turn and going the wrong way twice, I just figured the whole thing would be a bust and that the climbing would kind of suck. As a side note, the climbing area is on a dirt road slash ATV trail turnoff on Highway 395. It is pretty easy to get to, and my Kia Soul was actually able to handle the off-roading just fine. I recommend following the directions on the mountain project. Anyway, we finally found the climbing area and had an absolute blast. We climbed on the boulder titled Den Man 1, as described on the mountain project. And to quote my brother, it felt like I was climbing in a gym The crag features a tan-colored rock with a ton of finger-sized to hand-sized pockets haphazardly spread out. There are also a ton of large, thin flakes and a few cracks that make for a ton of varied types of climbs, although most are pretty vertical. The most surprising thing is that at first glance, the rock looks very delicate with pieces that could break off with the littlest bit of force. However, the rock is actually really hard intact and holds together well. There are climbs of all grades, which I'll get into, but it really makes for a fun experience where you could really spend all day in just this one spot. So the other time I came was a little later on this summer when I went on a solo hike slash scramble up Mount Agassiz, which is an eastern Sierra mountain that stands just under 14,000 feet and is about a class three scramble. This was actually a pretty crazy endeavor that I would not necessarily recommend. So I decided last minute on a Friday, that I was really jonesing to bag a peak. So the next day, Saturday, I drove up over six and a half hours to get to the Bishop Pass Trailhead. I slept right near the trailhead, woke up at like 3 a.m. on a Sunday, and hiked scrambled almost 16 miles round trip with about 5,000 feet of elevation gain to the top of the peak and back down. Again, I would not necessarily recommend this way of doing it, and at the time, I was in good shape and had been up to the Sierras recently, so I was somewhat acclimated going in. Anyway, since I was able to make it down in a reasonable amount of time, and Dead Man Summit happens to be on the way back from the Eastern Sierra for me, I went back to Dead Man 1 to get a little bit of bouldering in on the day. So I should explain that there are actually four different climbing areas on Dead Man Summit titled Dead Man 1. Through Deadman 4. In addition to that, there are a ton of other great looking boulder spots just down the road in the rest of the so called June Lake region. Now, neither time that I went this past summer did I necessarily have this podcast in mind. Otherwise I would have spent a little bit more time exploring some of the boulders nearby, but alas, here we are. That's what's so great about this area though. On one hand, it's a really fun and diverse, and I could honestly spend a weekend just at Deadman 1, climbing all the routes there. On the other hand, it is incredibly convenient if you are in the area, with climbs that are straightforward enough so you can just pop by for a quick boulder sesh. It also doesn't hurt that this area is very beginner-friendly, with a ton of V0 to V2 problems, but you know, also has some harder stuff. From what I've seen in photos, the rock looks very similar at the other Deadman boulders that I've not climbed. And the other near, and actually the other nearby June Lake bouldering areas. They follow mostly geologically, so I'm comfortable projecting my observations about the features that I noticed on Deadman 1 onto these other areas as well. So let's talk about what's going on here at Deadman Summit to have such a fun, bouldering playground. The area around Dead Man's Summit is rich with a ton of varied geologic activity and cool features, as you could imagine with the nearby mountain ranges. The story of the rocks at Dead Man's Summit specifically revolves around the nearby dormant volcano called the Long Valley Caldera which has a huge influence on the rock types and peaks around in the region. I feel like most of you have a pretty good idea of what a volcano is, but it actually has a pretty loose definition. A volcano is generally defined as a break in the Earth's crust where magma can escape onto the Earth's crust which can range from seafloor-spreading ridges to lava-exploding mountains. In the case of the Long Valley Caldera, it is the result of magma building up in a chamber below the crust and then exploding out every so often. A caldera is a special type of volcano where the volcano caves in on itself after a huge explosion, leaving a huge crater or valley. Crater Lake in Oregon is an example of a caldera. In the case of Long Valley, there was a huge explosion a little more than 700,000 years ago, so big that it drained a lot of the magma that was directly underneath it. Without the molten magma there anymore, the volcano actually caved in on itself, creating a huge valley crater. Actually, the Long Valley Caldera happens to be one of the Earth's largest, with a length of 20 miles and a width of 11. Aside from the main crater, there are also little offshoot vents and craters on the edge of the caldera, like Mammoth Mountain, that had their own explosions now that the main volcano was essentially drained. Deadman's Summit was actually created as a sort of offshoot explosion, and lies just inside the footprint of the original caldera. Crazy thing is, though, the magma chamber underneath the Long Valley caldera has been steadily filling back up ever since the big explosion 700,000 years ago. In fact, scientists in the 1980s started noticing some seismic activity in the area to discover that the middle of the caldera has risen like a foot, According to an article written by the USGS, the middle of the caldera is up about two feet since they started monitoring around 1980. Moving on. The rocks that form from the magma that erupts out of a volcano are under the umbrella of igneous rocks, which, if you've been keeping track at home, is the third major rock type along with sedimentary and metamorphic, which are exemplified in the first two episodes of the podcast. Somehow, some it has worked out that I've covered an example of each of the three major rock types in my first three episodes, which I, like, certainly did not plan. Anyway, igneous rocks can further be broken down into two main categories, extrusive and intrusive. Igneous rocks. An intrusive igneous rock is one where the magma cools very slowly underground to create the rock. The most famous example of an intrusive igneous rock is granite, which I will cover extensively in future episodes. So if an intrusive rock cools inside the earth, an extrusive igneous rock is one that cools relatively quickly on top or above the surface of the earth. This fast cooling can lead to some very interesting features and further subcategories depending on whether the magma flows along the surface or shoots up into the sky, what the chemical composition of the magma is, and so many other things. In the case of the Long Valley Caldera explosion over 700,000 years ago and subsequent eruptions, there are all kinds of volcanic flows and deposits that are exemplified in this region. Also, aside from all the stuff related to volcanoes in the area, there is also a lot related to faults and mountain building and glaciers that has had an effect on the region. It may seem like I'm getting a little lost in the weeds here on this episode, but just know that I'm barely scratching the surface of the geology of this region. Hopefully in later episodes, I'll come back here and talk about some of the other parts of the regional geology. But for today, I gotta get back on track. Okay, so going back to the big explosion of the Long Valley Caldera, it shot up a ton of volcanic ash, creating a plume not dissimilar to the plume of smoke and ash from the fires that we've been experiencing, although completely different in composition. While the smoke from the fires is made up of carbonaceous plant debris, the volcanic ash is silica-based in composition. Now, this volcanic ash deposited heavily in this region, creating the so-called Bishop Tuff, spelled T-U-F-F, which is the rock that you climb on at Dead Summit. The Bishop Tuff is incredibly omnipresent, though, across the western United States, with evidence of the ash deposit stretching from the Pacific Ocean all the way to Nebraska, and has a maximum thickness of 1,500 meters in certain places. That's just how big this explosion was. Interestingly, geologists have been able to gather a lot of information about the explosion, including that it lasted for six days by looking at the thickness and range of the deposit in certain areas. Anyway, geologists have broken down the tuff into further layering patterns and the amount of pumice versus pure ash, but it gets kind of confusing, so I'll just leave it at that. I'll get into the properties of the tuff in a little bit, but let's first dive back into the climbing. When I first arrived at Dead Man 1 with the rest of my family, there were a few things that immediately came to mind when I first touched the rock. The first was that there are a ton of holes and pockets in the rock of sizes that range from finger diameter to being able to stick my whole hand in. The depths of these pockets ranged as well, and it was sort of hard to tell which pockets would be deeper than others until actually trying to grab them. My other immediate thought was just how strong the rock was. Looking at the rock with all the pockets and flakes and such, It just seems like it would break off very easily, but I quickly realized that, for the most part, this rock was a lot stronger than it looked. Just so you know, the routes at Dead Summit are not well described on the mountain project, but the photos are really good once you get your bearings. When I have been there, though, it was pretty easy to figure out the routes from chalk marks, but I would suggest getting a guidebook if you're really keen on doing preset routes. When I describe some of the routes I'm worked on, I'm going to refer to the photos up on the mountain project that have the routes drawn on them. With that being said, there is a V0 titled, quote, letter B on the right wing of Deadman 1, which I have linked in the description, that I was surprised how well it climbed. You start on this undercling and then gradually follow these big pockets up before getting yourself up and over the ledge. I was so enthralled by how fun and awesome the holds were on this climb, which ranged from three finger pockets to decent knobs, and I thought it was probably challenging enough to be a V1. It was pumpy, a little challenging, and I cannot state this enough. There was such good rock quality. The climb was so fun and cool that it actually happens to be the current profile picture for the podcast. This is totally representative of most of the climbs here, with only maybe like one or two cases where a thin flake seemed a little iffy. So what the heck is going on with this volcanic tuff that makes it so amazing to climb on? So just to quickly recap, this rock is a volcanic tuff which means that it was formed from ash that exploded out of the Long Valley Caldera Volcano. This volcanic ash was just super hot magma and was shot up in the air in the form of microscopic particles and then slowly settled down. When these ash particles fell to the ground, they were still really hot. So hot that they literally melted together to create this rock. So the full name of this rock type is a welded tuff because of the fact that the ash particles literally welded together when they landed on the ground. It is this process of the volcanic ash particles that led to the ro- the rock becoming so strong since the particles literally fused together. In fact, volcanic tuff is actually an ancient building material and was one of the materials used for the construction of the Roman Colosseum. However, this fusing process is not perfect. While the particles were sticking together, there were also other existing rocks and gases that got trapped in between the ash particles. That is why you also may notice other little pebbles within the ash matrix, which got trapped while the ash was cooling. More importantly... The gas that got trapped between the particles left gaps of varying size in the rock. This process of gases passing through the rock as it cooled is the same as that of pumice. You know, that rock that you use to scratch your feet or whatever. For that reason, the sources I use describe the Bishop Tuff as a type of pumice. It's these gaps that create those perfect holds of varying size throughout the climbing area. As I talked about earlier, the pumice gaps are really the defining feature of the climbing area, and almost every climb includes some use of these pockets, but I'll give you some of my favorites. So on the rock called the center block, I really enjoyed this highball one titled Boulder H, (laughs) which goes around this four foot protruding knob feature that I've seen called the pig nose, which if you see a picture of it, you'll totally understand. Around the corner from this one, there are a pair of cracks that also make for fun climbs and use a lot of really nice pumice style holds. While all three of these climbs are listed at these zeros, they are quite high. So I've seen people talk about using ropes for them. I found that the hardest sections were actually near the ground. So if you just want to climb the bottom portion, that is certainly an option as well. Also, while I was there with my family, we found it was really easy to make our own climbs or offshoots of the ones listed. Actually, a few of my favorite sections were on the right wing and are not listed as climbs on the mountain project, but I've linked some photos of these climbs in the description. So, aside from the gaps that I just talked about, The other feature I kept noticing throughout this particular area is a number of prominent vertical cracks. Now, in general, vertical cracks can occur for a variety of different reasons in a given rock. It is sometimes hard to pinpoint exactly why a certain crack exists in a certain location, especially when it can begin to form for one reason and then expand and be shaped for another. There is one particular crack climb that I think can be attributed to a unique feature of how this rock was formed. So I'm going to get into that. This crack climb is called the Dead Man's Corner and is listed as a V1 on the Mountain Project. It is a thin, finger-to-hand-sized crack that is nearly vertical. To the right and left are nearly flat, vertical walls that come together at an obtuse angle with the featured crack In the middle. What is particularly striking is how flat these two faces are in the sense that they are nearly vertical without contours. I mean, of course, they have plenty of divots made from the air pockets that I talked about earlier. But still, nearly vertical with a nearly vertical crack. It all just seemed a little too, I don't know, perfect for me. Well, after looking into it, I think this is a prime example of the columnar jointing that frequently occurs in the Bishop Tuff. So let's talk about that for a sec. So this feature is described in detail in the AGU paper that I link below. But essentially, columnar jointing is a result of the cooling process when the rock is formed. Columnar jointing actually occurs in a lot of different types of extrusive, igneous rocks. Remember, those are the kinds of rocks that cool quickly on the surface of the earth. The Bishop Tuff is specifically mentioned as one of them. Essentially what happens is that after the super hot ash particles weld together, they begin to cool, and as things cool, they contract or shrink. As the shrinking occurs, it will actually break the bonds created by the initial welding, causing the material to crack and fracture. Scientists have found that with a somewhat homogeneous material, like a lava flow, the fractures will occur in nearly perfect geometric patterns. And in the case of the Bishop Tuff, this happens to be in hexagonal columns. If you're curious to learn more or want to see a good diagram, check out the link to the source in the description about columnar jointing. I'm sorry if that was confusing. It's a pretty complicated concept, though. But the bottom line is that cooling rock creates the cracks in predictable patterns. For a lot of extrusive igneous rocks, this happens to be in columns. And one of the greatest examples of this columnar jointing in the world happens to be really close to Denman's summit. Devil's Postpile National Monument which is actually a basaltic rock made from lava, has some near-perfect columnar joints. So if you have some time, you should check that out as well. At least see a photo of what this looks like because it perfectly exemplifies what this columnar jointing looks like. Getting back to Deadman's Summit, though, and the Deadman's Corner climb, I'm willing to bet that this was a large columnar joint where the column that was originally in that gap has since broken off while i don't have definitive proof of this it is a vertical crack that is propagated along an obtuse angle which makes sense in the context of being a hexagonal column at any rate it's a really fun climb and you should definitely check it out whether it's to evaluate whether or not you think It's an example of columnar joint or you just want a fun highball i linked a photo of me climbing the route if you're interested in seeing a closer up photo of what it looks like than what the mountain project shows you anyway in conclusion i may have gotten a little further into the weeds than i initially intended but i just think it's so cool i mean you have one of the biggest volcanic eruptions in earth history exploding a ton of ash into the air ash that is found as far away as freaking Nebraska. Then, this hot ash melts together to create the Bishop Tuff with trapped air, creating perfect pockets for climbing. Then, as the rock cools down, it contracts to create a hexagonal, column-style jointing pattern. I have got to say, the earth really put in some good work creating this climbing area, with the outstanding quality of the climbs, I would say that the hard work by the earth <laughs> paid off. mans Summit, although not super well known, is very much alive with bomb-ass climbs. Thank you so, so much for listening. Again, I am really thankful for everyone commenting and giving me positive encouragement. It is tough to put these episodes together, especially when I cannot make definitive plans to go anywhere, given the unpredictable nature of the fires right now. But I'm really passionate about this podcast and will get creative with the episodes if I can't get out, because I really want to get keep putting out content. A quick question for the audience. I'm curious, uh, what do you guys think of the pictures, sources, and climbs linked in the description? Is there anything you dislike or like about that format? I would love to know. If you want to connect with me, feel free to reach out via Instagram, Mountain Project, Twitter, email, or whatever. Even if you don't have any comment, just feel free to say hello. If you like this episode and want to support me and this podcast, the best thing you can do right now is share it with your friends, family, or whoever. In fact, as gyms and crags begin to open up, Share it with someone that you meet, or maybe use this podcast as a way to make a new friend. Okay, I didn't have plans to do this until, like, just now, but if you meet a new friend and get them into this podcast, I will send you both Rock Behind the Climbing t-shirts. I literally don't have plans at all for t-shirts or merch right now. I don't have any designs or anything. But if you make a new friend and bond over this podcast... That would just make me so happy. So yeah, get out there, make some friends at a social distance, and let me know what you think of the podcast. And I will catch you on the next one. Stay safe out there. Jazz Hammer out.